0: Bible with me, if you would, and open it to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 1. Gospel of Luke 12, 1 is where we will be this morning. I want to tell you a story of something that happened a long time ago. It was begun in the year... 1173, a medieval year. It was a construction project that began that year, 1173, and it would not end for another 226 years. It would finally be completed in the year 1399. And all of that time and all of those resources and all of the effort and all of the design was spent constructing what is a bell tower. So that particular Religions could ring a bell to uh, signal the beginning of their service and call to worship. This bell tower became known as one of the greatest engineering marvels that the world has ever known. At the time of its completion, it was the tallest structure in the world. It had, as you can imagine, in its 226 year history, it had multiple architect's Engineers and builders working upon it. It had the most uh, significant design of anything in its period. It was ornate, it was detailed, lots of effort had gone into it. What makes the structure so popular today, and actually it makes the list of one of the seven wonders of the world, what makes it so popular today is that not only is it an engineering marvel but it's also a tremendous engineering failure. I regard, or I'm talking about here, the leaning tower of Pisa. We know this tower. A wonderful tower built completely out of marble. And yet, it is sinking into the earth because it has no foundation. What's really remarkable about that tower is not just that it's a bell tower, not just that it's one of the uh, tallest structures of its time, What's really remarkable is that they knew it was leaning during construction and they tried to compensate for it. If you look at it now, you'll notice that the builders built a curve into the building trying to help it balance. Instead of scrapping their plans, which would have been wise and smart, and starting over, they just tried to compensate for the issue. They could not compensate for it And at one point in time in its history, it was recorded that the tower actually leaned 10 degrees in one direction. A recent decade of remodeling for the tower happened in 1991 to 2001, where they inserted concrete grout into the structure to try to sure it up, and then they they tried to bring it back to center so that it wouldn't uh, fall over. And their efforts only managed to bring it back to a four degree lean so not not as much as 10 but still leaning it's now the top of it is now about 10 to 12 meters off of center and it's still sinking into the earth the best engineering minds and architectures of the day think it will last maybe another 200 years without any further help before it actually will fall over as I said, the amazing fact, once you know the history of the the building, is that the builders continued to build even though they knew it it was leaning and the foundation was poor. They had committed themselves to the blueprints for this tower and spent 200 and something years building it, knowing that eventually it's not going to function. It's not solid. The structure can fall at any moment. In fact, the tower was rarely used because of its danger. We know the wise thing would have been to scrap the plans right and start over. And yet remarkably 226 years of builders persisted in these blueprints and persisted in their plan. Blueprints, if you know anything about construction, they're meant to be carefully planned designs to to encourage maximum support strength, endurance, and efficiency in a structure. These guys disregarded that. And so, they built the leaning tower of Pisa, which remarkably has continued to exist and stand. I share that story to point out their foolishness of ignoring blueprints. And how foolish it is for us to ignore the blueprint of God that He has designed for us as Christians to live in this life on this earth while we're here a lot of Christians don't know how to live they don't know how to navigate their existence here they surrender their life to Christ and then they look at the Bible and they they get bogged down with all of these things to do and and all of these things staring back at them and they really wonder how am I supposed to navigate all of these issues that I face what's the blueprint for the Christian life but one thing I think is very important in instilling in believers is that God has not saved us and then left us to wonder and figure out a godly life on our own. God has actually very plainly and clearly laid each and every step before us that we might follow him and lead a life of godliness that pleases him to live the Christian faith here and now and benefit from a life lived for him. I think that's what we come to find in Luke chapter 12 this morning. Christ's blueprints For the Christian life, four simple truths that Jesus is sharing specifically to his disciples for how they need to follow him, what they need to do to be disciples. These four simple truths encompass everything of our Christian life. If you will follow these blueprints, you will grow in godliness. Look with me in Luke chapter 12, verse 1 this morning. Jesus has been interacting with this crowd and then he went to have dinner at a Pharisee's house and and confronted him and the lawyers of the day and now in chapter 12 verse 1 we pick up another crowd is pressing in around him Luke reports in the meantime when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another Jesus began to speak to his disciples first and this is what he says Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour. What you ought to say. Four truths here. Four steps in the blueprint of living living the Christian life. The first one is. Beware of hypocrisy. Beware of hypocrisy. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Now what is hypocrisy? That's not something we really think a lot about. Uh, In fact we might struggle defining that term. And yet it's something we can easily recognize. In a person's life or in our own life or around us. We know what hypocrisy is by experience, don't we? It's externally pretending to be something or someone that you are not on the inside. Jesus has already addressed in chapter 11 what hypocrisy is by addressing the Pharisees. In verse 39, he tells them, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You think you're godly and you're righteous and and you play that game on the outside, but inside really you're corrupt, deceitful and dead. He goes on through verse forty four. Explaining that hypocrites care only about outward rituals and neglect the important matters of the heart. We called that misplaced priorities. He goes on to say in verse forty three, hypocrites are attention seekers Everything they do is to be seen and praised by others. He goes on and says hypocrites in verse 44 are destructive. They're unholy, ungodly, unclean, and they lead others down their destructive path. In the Christian sense of the word, which is the only way that matters, hypocrisy is pretending to be religious and godly and righteous on the outside through your actions and your behaviors, but on the inside You're corrupt, deceitful, and dead. Your heart is wicked and you are full of lying, deceitfulness, hiding the truth of who you are. Hypocrisy is mixing up religion. It's taking the things of God and instead of applying them to the heart and living in the sincerity of the Christian faith, it makes it all about work, ritualistic rites, All done for the external appearance. Jesus uses a unique word in the end of verse 1 to describe this hypocrisy. He calls it leaven. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now that's common imagery for the day. If you wanted bread in Jesus' time, you made it yourself. And you knew that you needed leaven to do so. You add into this the Old Testament laws that deal with Leaven and unleavened bread. And people knew what leaven was and what it did to the dough that it was applied to. It was a slowly invading and affecting ingredient that changed the dough around it. Made it into bread. Could not have bread in the sense of knowing what bread is without leaven. And Jesus specifically uses that word to describe hypocrisy. It is like leaven slowly invades and completely affects the heart. Before long, the hypocrite is callous, knows nothing of humility, and is more drawn away from the truth than they even realize. Before long, the hypocrite has worn out such a path that leads away from God that they have no idea how to return back to God. Jesus is telling us you can play religion all day long and it will destroy you. Beware of hypocrisy. Beware of letting it creep in and change who you are because the hypocrite, beginning with a little leaven, will realize that their life has soon been taken over by religious hypocrisy and there is no way they can correct it. They will stand before God, realize it is too late and that they have been wrong the entire time. Church, We are prone to be hypocrites. We are prone to play religion and play Christianity. And we are prone to take the true things of God that matter for the heart and make them all about external factors. We're good at putting on a show, aren't we? Good at playing the game. We're good at convincing ourselves that our hearts are truly changed because we, we're not that bad and we see the morals that we want to practice and on and on and on. You want to avoid a lot of heartache in life. You want to avoid getting stuck in an ungodly rut. Beware of hypocrisy in your own heart. Put it away, get rid of it, and be sincere before Christ and one another, of your humility before God, that is where true life begins. That's where it begins to flourish. Jesus goes on to say in verse 2 and 3, hypocrisy is a temporary and futile game. And it ends in a judgment that reveals everything. One day, Jesus says, nothing will be covered up. It will all be revealed. Nothing will be hidden. It will be made known. In fact, not just known. Verse 3, whatever has happened in the dark is going to be brought into the light. Plainly and clearly seen as the sun shines upon a field. He goes on to say, whatever you thought you whispered in private rooms will not be private. It's going to be proclaimed on the housetops. It's going to be preached on the rooftops and echo through the streets. Hypocrisy is a futile game because nothing that you try to cover up in this life will stay covered up. All of the wretchedness of your heart will be on display and disclosed in the end day. And the only cure to it is genuine and honest repentance now. Beware of playing the game. Beware of turning faith and God into external religious matters that are void of sincerity, truth, and humility. A blueprint for the Christian life is to run from such thinking and living. He goes on in verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. The next step in this blueprint is to know God. Know God. I was back and forth preparing this week. There's so much truth contained in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. We we could have spent several weeks here. It is a rich text of Scripture. Because it is a text of Scripture that puts everything else in our lives into proper perspective and proper placing. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy Begins, with the very first sentence of that book saying, what comes into your mind, When you think of God as the most important thing about you. And that's true. And the blueprint for the Christian life is to know God. We've talked about this before. That's the highest calling for us as Christians. That's the ultimate goal. The ultimate end for us knowing what we can about God, relating to Him and understanding Him. God has saved us that we might know Him. He's given us the Bible that we might know Him. He's sent His Son that we might know Him and given the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit so that we might know Him. God wants us to understand who He is and respond to Him appropriately in the most glorifying way possible. It is the greatest gift and joy of the Christian faith To know our Creator. Now I have to say, knowing God means to know Him as He is and not as we wish Him to be. Knowing God means to submit to Him as He is revealed in Scripture, not how we think He should be. Our God is Almighty. He is divine. He is powerful. He is the Lord of all creation. Sovereign over all things. And so much more. And we are notorious of thinking about only our few favorite attributes or characteristics of Him. We are notorious of limiting God in our understanding, and our mind. Yes, our God is a God of love. And compassion and mercy and forgiveness. But the list does not stop there. We're quick to assert those things. Because those are the things that make us feel good about our relationship with God. But Christ paints a very different picture here in verse 5 of God. In fact, according to Jesus, we are to be people who fear God. Look at the language our Lord uses in verse 5. I will warn you whom to fear. This is an instruction from the Lord, but it also goes a little bit beyond instruction. It's a warning. Don't treat God casually. Don't be like the hypocrite and play around with the things of God. I'm warning you who to fear. It's not men. It's not institutions. It is God. By the way, we struggle with this word fear, don't we? And defining that because, again, we're quick to assert God is a God of love. So how do I fear a loving God? But I want you to know Jesus uses the word here for fear. Very straightforward, very simple. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. There are some key words there that we need to understand about God. First, it's that He can kill. God has the authority of life and death in his hands. This is the God who we relate to. This is the God who we are to know. Your life, every day of it, is marked out in the hands of God. You live for as long as God will have you live. And you die precisely when God would have you die. It's further than that. Jesus talks of his authority. God has the authority to cast into hell. Hell is a very real place. Contrary to secular thought is not the kingdom of Satan. Hell is the very creation of God. Under the domain of God. The jurisdiction of God. It's not divorced from Him. Jesus says, fear Him who can put you there. Every unrepentant sinner who does not trust in Jesus Christ will stand before God who has the authority to place them in eternal punishment. And before we declare God unfair, let me remind you, that is... A rightful punishment for creatures of the dust who defile their Creator in disobedience. Hell is not unfair. It is just. And we belong to a divine, just God who does not ignore sin. The death of His Son is proof of that. Jesus says, you want to beware of hypocrisy and playing the game, you need to know who God is. He's the one with the authority to cast them to hell. And He's the one who does put people there if they do not turn to Him in faith through Christ. Five times Jesus uses the word fear in this text. Three of them in regards to fearing God. He wraps up verse 5 by saying, Yes, I tell you, absolutely fear God. It is a necessity for the Christian life. In fact, the author of Proverbs starts out his book in chapter 1, verse 7, saying, What? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You want your life to be correctly informed? Fear God, understand who He is, understand that you're accountable to Him, understand that you have to give an answer to Him. You want to know the reality of your existence. You have to begin with knowing who God is. That's where Jesus is beginning. Other texts, Larry read one this morning, but others are, one of them would be Psalm 103 verse 17. Found very interesting this week. 103 verse 17 says, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who... Fear Him. It's very specific, isn't it? It's on those who fear Him. That's because fearing God means we humble ourselves before Him and submit ourselves to Him and His will. That's exactly what Christ is talking about here. Life and death are in the hands of God, but more than that, eternity is in the hands of God. And it is He alone that determines your eternity understand, know Him. Knowing God also, according to Christ, eliminates the fear of man, doesn't it? Verse 4, I tell you, my friends, speaking to the disciples, do not fear those who kill the body and then after that have nothing more that they can do. I thought of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 when they're brought before the council for preaching Christ and they say, you need to determine... Whether it's better for us to obey God rather than man, for us we will obey God. And in verse five, they're hauled before the council. Or chapter five, they're hauled before the council again, and they say the exact same thing: We think it's better to obey God than to man. Obey man. It's exactly what Christ is doing here, eliminating our fear of men by elevating our understanding of God. That's the blueprint of the Christian life. Do not be concerned what will happen to you in this world. Your physical death may be temporary, but your eternity is in the hands of God and that's what matters most. Christ would tell us to fear God because it drives us to humility, doesn't it? Both in repentance and in sanctification. We come to faith in Christ because we fear the consequences of our sin before a holy God, right? We know the punishment for that sin in the presence of a holy God. And until you realize that, until you realize God's divine justice and God's divine wrath and divine holiness will bring an account upon sin, you don't know the significance of Christ's forgiveness. The beginning of knowledge even for salvation is the fear of the Lord. But it also drives us to humility and sanctification, right? Even for the Christian today, fear drives us away from sin. Knowing who God is and continuing to fear Him as believers keeps us out of the trap of the devil. Well, knowing God also, according to Christ, brings immense comfort and security for us in verses 6 and 7. Because this same God, who is almighty and all-powerful and all authoritative, cares for us. In fact, according to Jesus, we are the most valued creation of God. Loved more than any other creation. So much so that the insignificant details of our lives, the number of hairs on our head, are numbered by God. So Jesus would say in verse 7, Fear not. Fear are more value than many sparrows. So in one instance in this text, Jesus is telling us to fear God. He has the authority to kill and cast into hell. I'm telling you, fear Him. I'm warning you, fear Him. Let that fear drive you to repentance before Him. Let that fear drive you away, of, away from sin because of Him. And then in verse 7, I tell you also, don't fear Him. One commentator wrote, God is God in the sense that we should fear Him, but yet His character says we should not fear Him. In fact, it is God Himself who alleviates our fear of Him, right? Our fear of eternal punishment for our sin is only reconciled and alleviated through Christ. The only way we can fear not is Jesus. Here we have a God in this one text who will bring every sin sin to account. And every single person will stand before him as the final judge. And yet, we have the tenderness of God on display in verse 6 and 7. Unrivaled mercy immense grace and forgiveness here of God. Know God. That's the blueprint of the Christian life. Know God and be like Christ who has no contradiction in His mind of fearing God and loving God, of the the justice of God and the forgiveness of God. And we shouldn't have a contradiction either. The fear of God keeps us in check. It drives us to repentance. And the love of God allows us to Relate to Him. Fear not. You are of more value than many, many sparrows. What a tender God who has the authority to cast any and all into hell for their sin, yet would offer a way of forgiveness through Christ. Beautiful. Well, the third blueprint here in this text, moving quickly, is to confess Christ the Son So we've seen beware of hypocrisy. Know God the Father. Confess Christ the Son. We must know our eternity revolves around Jesus. That's what the Lord Himself says in verses 8 and 9. Your acknowledgement by Me or denial by Me revolves around Me. And it's that simple. If you acknowledge Me before men, I will acknowledge you. And if you didn't... Deny me before men, I will deny you. There's no such thing as a perpetually ashamed Christian. We go through moments of fear and fear of rejection and struggling with that. All of us do and all of us will. But the perpetually ashamed Christian does not exist. Because denial before men of who Christ is means denial by Christ in the life to come it may confessing christ may yield persecution and opposition but don't feel the fear of those who can only kill the body because it will yield eternal rewards to confess christ according to the lord confessing him is what unites us with him public profession of our faith is not optional it's required it's a necessity it's an expectation A blueprint for the Christian life is to confess Christ. Confessing before the world and confessing before one another and confessing to the lost around us that they might be saved. Nothing else in all of your life matters more than that. I hope you understand that truth because your eternity depends upon it. Nothing else in your entire existence However long or short it may be, nothing else matters more than confessing Christ. Confession, acknowledgement, he acknowledges you. Denial, he denies you. And that is your eternity. It also means not just that our eternity revolves around Christ but that what Christ thinks about us matters the most. In this text, the emphasis is not on necessarily our acknowledgement and our denial, more so on Christ's acknowledgement and Christ's denial. What Jesus thinks about us matters for eternity. I thought of Peter who did deny the Lord, didn't he? Denied Him three times in one single setting. And yet... Peter repented and was accepted again by the Lord. What matters is what the Lord thinks of us. Repentance is available. While it is the day of salvation, according to Paul, it's it's available now. And you may have lived a life of denial. Maybe you haven't spoken the word of denial. Maybe you haven't said, I deny Christ. But maybe you've denied Him by submitting to His word, submitting to His yielding, disagreeing with who He is or what He stands for. And the beauty is we can repent and be accepted by Christ again. What Christ thinks of us matters the most. Okay, lastly, beware of hypocrisy. Know God the Father. Confess Christ the Son and honor the Holy Spirit. Honor the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, Jesus tells us of the great importance of the Holy Spirit. He says, you can speak a word against me and you'll be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. He's just elevated the third member of the Trinity before us. Now, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Lots of debate has centered upon that. Lots of discussion, lots of disagreement has arisen. Because of that phrasing and language that Christ uses. I think it comes down to this personally. Personally. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit means to reject His work. And to reject the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is to reject the Holy Spirit Himself, which is God. Which means to reject His convictions. Which means to reject His offer of salvation. His application of the Gospel in your life. You know how many people sit in church, and you've heard me say this before, they sit in church week after week and the Holy Spirit is present and he's ministering the word of God to hearts and he's making the gospel come alive in hearts and they are closed off silent hard callous to look at the Holy Spirit and attribute to him falsehood I don't believe you unworthiness that's not true or even to go as far as they did in Luke 11 and attribute his work through Jesus to the work of Beelzebul All of that is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Rejecting who He is and what He's come to do. Our only option in regards to Him is to submit to Him and yield to Him appropriately. Because yielding to Him is empowering and necessary for the Christian, isn't it? Yes, 2 Timothy 3.12 All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And yet, according to Jesus, verse 11 and 12, when you're dragged before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, all of those governing entities and institutes around you, don't, don't be anxious. The Holy Spirit's going to work through you. He provides words, removing fear of not knowing what we're to say or how to defend ourselves. He, he removes anxiety, worry. He provides comfort. One of the blueprints of the Christian life and navigating this world before we go to heaven is honoring the Spirit's work in our lives and submitting to Him appropriately. Well, I would wrap up just bringing it all together for you real quick. How are we supposed to live as Christians in this life and live a godly life? The blueprint is this. Beware of hypocrisy. Be sincere, humble, and genuine about the things of God. Because the Christian faith is not about external religion or rights. It's about the heart. Know that. Number two, know God. That's the point of your salvation. And that should be the pursuit of your life. Diligently knowing and relating to the God of the Bible. Number three, confess Christ because your eternity revolves around Him. And true faith professes Him in public. Number four, honor the Spirit. Yield to Him and His instruction. Submit to His control and be used by Him to, to profess Christ. The final truth is this. None of that is possible unless Christ has come into your heart. None of those things are, are doable unless Jesus has first regenerated you and given you life in And awakened your soul. And saved you. Without trusting in Christ. You will always be the hypocrite. Without trusting in Christ. You will never know God. As a child of God. Without trusting in Christ. You will not be able to confess. Christ genuinely. Without trusting in Christ. You cannot. Honor the spirit. All of these things are hingent upon you, placing your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. This is the blueprint for the Christian life. Not a good moral life. Not an ethic, ethical life. For the Christian life. The life that's under the submission and under the rule of the kingdom of God. How do I live as a kingdom citizen? It begins with trusting in Christ. And when He begins to shape your heart, Hypocrisy flees. As He begins to shape your heart, you begin to know God. And to fear Him. And run from sin. And embrace His mercy. As Christ begins to work in your heart, you begin to confess Him more and more and more. And we're so willing to stand up for gun rights and against abortion and all of those things because they've moved within us. Stand up for Christ. Nothing moves in you more than Jesus. As our hearts begin to be shaped by Him as we submit to Him, more and more will we honor the Spirit, discerning His work in our lives and submitting to Him appropriately. None of these things are possible without first trusting in Jesus for salvation. Some of you have not done that. And you will be the opposite of this list. You will be the hypocrite who does not know God, does not confess Christ, does not have eternal life and cannot honor the Spirit. Others of us have known and experienced the grace of God and salvation. Here is your navigation plan to get through this life and honor God the best way. Four simple rules. Four simple steps and general blueprints to live by. Avoid hypocrisy. Know God. Confess Christ. Honor the Spirit in your life. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and how it instructs us so wonderfully. Lord, You know even better than I the rich, rich truths that are present in these 12 verses. I don't know, Lord, maybe we should have spent more in-depth time on each and every one of them. And yet, God, they cannot be divorced from one another there. There's single instruction to your disciples that you you put together and you spoke in a single breath to them. You want them to acknowledge you before men, not to have the fear of man and what somebody might think. What reputation you might get if you're sharing the gospel, you didn't want them to care about that. You wanted them to care about what God thinks and. Confessing you and acknowledging you before the world. You wanted us to avoid denying you. You wanted us to avoid blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You wanted us to submit to His work and understand the benefits of His indweltment within us. I pray these truths would become real to us in those ways. God, I know so many times I've thought this and I know people have have come to You about it, God, in prayer. They've come to me about it by Your grace. Wondering, what do I do? And how do I get through this? And how do I, this, that, or the other, how do I navigate the Christian life? I believe You teach us that here. Oh God, would You please keep us from being hypocritical? Make us sincere about your word. Help us to love you and follow you from the heart. Desire and delight obedience from the heart. Help us to know you, God, not just as we wish you would be or just the favorite parts about you, but all of you. You are a God to be feared, and yet, simultaneously, We don't have to fear You if we're in Christ. Help us to confess You, Lord, more and more. To make frequent and often public professions of faith in You. Sharing the Gospel. Making You known. And help us to rely upon Your Spirit to do so. And submit to Him. God, help us navigate Christian life here on earth. In this way, that you may be pleased and glorified with us. God, I know there are unbelievers here. More of an educated guess for me, but you know without doubt who the unbelievers are. Those who are lost. They sit here and they're bored with your word or they sit here and they think they've already heard it or. Sit here and focus on other things. Whatever vice they fall under as a snare of the enemy, God, You still know their hearts and their lostness. Would You be so kind to wake them up today? To show them that they don't know You or that they're being the hypocrite or they haven't confessed You or they don't submit to Your Spirit. Whatever it may be, save the lost this morning. And for those of us who are Your children, O God, let us... Lead this life that you've called us to leave to lead. We love you, Lord. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.